War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. Elissa is away today, so I am your only host for this episode. Today, we are once again talking about the war in Ukraine, specifically about Ukraine, about Russia, about Ukraine's backers, and about what might happen next. Yes, a lot of people, of course, in the world are tired. But my question is, what is the alternative? And I hear to give Putin what he wants and to stop the war. What does it mean? To give 30% of our land? No accountability? No tribunal? No, what to do? I know what to do. We have to be strong. If Ukraine war watchers spent much of last summer asking themselves if the promised counteroffensive had yet begun, now, in November, it seems pretty clear that it's ended. The front lines, however, have not changed all that much from what they looked like in summer. This is not for want of trying by both Ukrainian and Russian forces, which have both seen huge casualties over these months. But now Ukraine's chief military commander is describing the current situation as a stalemate. Nevertheless, he and his leadership are poised to fight on, as is Moscow. Russia has substantially ramped up weapons production and indicates that it's planning to do so in perpetuity. And it's confident that Ukraine will back down first, most likely when its Western backers get tired of supporting it, perhaps as a result of elections changing governments in some key countries, most notably the United States. But if Ukrainian and Russian officials both present the war as existential for their countries, so too do Ukraine's backers, who see in any potential Russian victory tremendous risk for European and global security. Thus, the United States and European countries have promised to ramp up weapon and munitions production to keep Ukraine equipped. The stage is set, therefore, for months, if not years, of continued fighting. But in the war that has brought many surprises, maybe the next one could be the beginning of its end, however difficult that might be to imagine from where we are today. To talk about this, I am really pleased to welcome Samuel Chirup to the show. Sam is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, and he has spent much of his career writing about the foreign policies of Russia, Ukraine, and other former Soviet states, as well as about European and Eurasian regional security and U.S.-Russia relations, including questions of deterrence, strategic stability, and arms control. Sam, welcome to War and Peace. Thanks for having me, Leah. So Sam, you've gotten a lot of attention, not all of it friendly, for very consistently arguing that negotiations remain the most likely way that this war will end and that you can't close the door to them. Right now, the conventional wisdom, and to be frank, my own assessment, is that negotiations aren't very likely, mostly because Russia has every reason to see itself as being in a pretty advantageous position, and because of that, it's tremendously unlikely to compromise. So am I wrong? Is this actually a good time to think about negotiations? I guess as a general matter, you're not wrong in that I can't imagine formal negotiations with flags on tables and delegations on either side in front of the cameras emerging before the end of the year, say, by any means. But I would say that there are a number of factors which may make this moment somewhat more conducive to moving in that direction. And there will take a long time to get from where we are to that flags on the table moment, I mean, months, uh, even when the decision is taken to move in that direction. So those include 
some of the things that you cited, which is the fact that if you look back, even if you go back before the summer, a year ago, after the two successful counteroffensives that the Ukrainians had in Kherson and Kharkiv, basically the front lines haven't moved that much in a year, right? So that's the majority. That's, you know, there've been more months of uh, attrition and static front lines than there have been of maneuver and dynamic front lines. And that I think is, you know, underscored some broader fundamental factors of this conflict, which we can get into, which is sort of why I end up thinking that it will end in a negotiation. But so basically, I think that it's become clear that the military rapid changes on the ground militarily are unlikely. And the Ukrainians clearly have come to understand that given Zaluzhny's public statements that you referenced. And I think that there is an increasing understanding about the challenges of the long-term sustainability of this current level of Western support. And the last thing uh, Ukraine's Western backers would want is for the switch to be turned off cold turkey, so to speak, or completely, which could, as you mentioned, result from election outcomes. But we have two dynamics going on right now within, for the U.S., which I think have underscored the challenges of sustainability. Now, this is not a matter of the money itself being too burdensome for the U.S. in terms of its overall budget, but we're seeing the politics of the supplemental that the, the Biden administration has requested for Ukraine, without which they say they will have no money to support Ukraine come the end of the year play itself out here. And there's a whole lot of uncertainty about how this will come out in the end. Could well be that they will get it or, you know, at the moment, we have reason to suspect that they might not. That, of course, comes at the same time as the war in Gaza has increasingly dominated the inboxes of the most senior U.S. decision makers. So now, these two crises might not have any, um, they might have some, but uh, they might not play out in a way that's dramatic in terms of their impact on Ukraine uh, directly. But what I would say is that they are indications of a broader phenomenon, which is that the extraordinary level of attention and support have serious sustainability uh, challenges for the U.S. and other Western backers of Ukraine going forward. And I think that that might be a moment when some here in Washington might start to think about, okay, well, if this is, if we're challenges to the sustainability of this, then maybe we need to think about locking in gains and engaging with our Ukrainian partners to talk these things through. So I'd also say that there are some indications that the Russians are uh, not as hostile to the idea of at least a ceasefire as you might have suggested in your opening comments. Um, their public rhetoric certainly is, uh, in recent weeks, consistent in that they say they are open to talks. Now, take that for what you will, which is, you know, we can just dismiss it out of hand, but it's better that they're saying that than that they're saying the opposite. And I think we've seen over the course of the conflict that Russia's objectives have evolved with their coming to grips with the limits of what they can do militarily. And while I would not say that these factors that I've described, both in Ukraine, in the West, and in Russia, are a guarantee of movement towards the table anytime soon, I do think that there's some, that the environment is more conducive to that than it was before the Ukrainians had tried their hand at the counteroffensive or in a context where US support seemed like it was uh, potentially sustainable indefinitely. 
But Sam, the situation you described basically tells me that the Russians are right in your view, right? That the Western states are going to get sick of supporting Ukraine, that the aid will draw down and Ukraine will be forced to capitulate. I mean, that's kind of the story you're telling, though you're telling it as, and they'll tell Ukraine to lock in gains. But is it possible to lock in gains if you're coming into the negotiation from that position, that your backers are ceasing to support you, that uh, you have no choice, you're either going to lose more people and more territory, or you're going to come to the negotiating table? I mean, if I'm Moscow under these circumstances, I'm going to press really hard for more territory than I currently control. I'm going to say, get out of Kherson. I'm going to say, get out of Zaporizhia, which in fact is actually what they're saying. So how do you think this works? How, how do you see a negotiation where Ukraine is actually able to lock in anything? Well, compared to where they were in March of 2022, uh, they are in a much more strategically advantageous position now than they were then more so than before the two successful counteroffensives. I mean, the short version, a short answer to your question is like, I don't know, but neither do you. Um, and uh, neither really does anyone until they actually sit down. I think there are reasons to suspect that, or to at least test the proposition that the very real costs of the war for Russia are enough to get them to at least agree to a ceasefire and cessation of hostilities in place that could be sustained over time. And if they want to have unreasonable demands, then it won't work. You know, if they say give up territory that the Ukrainians control, I mean, it's just not going to fly. But, you know, I think that the practical question is not like, do I think it's a high probability outcome that this will succeed or that the Russians will be reasonable? Is it, for policymakers, it should be like, is it worth testing the proposition that that might be the case? And I think the answer is yes, because the consequences of continuing are quite severe. And the logic that you mentioned about the Russians' calculus about the long term being on their side, you know, I think we're sort of dancing around the problem that they might be right. So that should be an impetus to the other side, namely Ukraine and its Western supporters, to think about avoiding that kind of long-term outcome that um, we think the Russians have in mind that is sort of wearing down Ukraine and its partners until they capitulate. So, you know, I, that that strikes me as an impetus to, to test the proposition sooner rather than later, rather than a reason not to. Um, but I accept that that might be the frame of mind that the Russians are in, but I don't think we'll know until we try. Okay, but if you're, if I accept this proposition, I would want Ukraine and its Western backers to go into these negotiations with their own very clear sense of what they're trying to accomplish, what they're willing to offer. Um, and, you know, I, just try and see what you can get, I think, is a recipe for failure. So what what would be the negotiating position? And what incentives would you want to be offering to the Russians that would get them to actually give Ukraine what it wants, what it needs, or some amount of it. So I think you're pointing to uh, a broader dynamic, which before I try to get at the specifics, is something that is sorely lacking in both intra-Western discussions on the conflict and uh, discussions between Western governments and their Ukrainian counterparts, which is 
a diplomatic strategy. You know, like this should be on the agenda along with the military strategy. You know, given that we feel it's appropriate to give the Ukrainians advice about everything under the sun, down to like the number of detectives they should have in the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, you know, I think we can talk to them about a diplomatic strategy and we should be talking to them about a diplomatic strategy precisely to avoid the kind of lack of preparedness that you're describing. So I don't think that necessarily, like the Russians will tell us what they want. I don't think we need to anticipate that necessarily in advance. Um, The question, and Ukraine will have, of course, its own views as to what it needs to get out of this. My, you know, looking at it maybe from a U.S. perspective, what I would think would be the, should be the top priority would be uh, ensuring that Ukraine can recover and have a viable economic prospect in the context of a post-war situation and to minimize the chances of war recurrence. In other words, to make sure that whatever ceasefire is agreed is durable. And that will be an immense challenge. Um, but those would be you know, the broad objectives that I would think about going into any uh, diplomatic track. And look, from my point of view, or my assessment, if you have any negotiations, you really have three sets of negotiations. You have negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, you have negotiations between Western states and Russia, and you have negotiations between Ukraine and Western states. And all of these add up into something. So when you talk about war not recurring, that's war between Ukraine and Russia, but there's also a question of war not recurring somewhere else, uh, Georgia, Moldova. So, you know, I can design something I think is sustainable, right? And it makes war harder because I tell people how many weapons of what sorts they can have on what territory. And that's all great, except that I don't see how we get people to sign on to that if they think that they can get more. If they think, I mean, what Russia says when it says it's willing to negotiate is that it's willing to negotiate under the precondition that Ukraine accepts new realities, and the new realities are Russia controlling more territory than it actually controls. How do you get that country to agree to any of this? So just on that last point, so I mean, you know, they've said a variety of things. That language has been used, but other language has also been used that is not so definitive. And I would also say that what I think is more important is the openness is the declared openness to this, to to talks as a general matter, rather than the specifics of what they're saying, because they have every incentive to come out with maximalist positions when there is no negotiation. Why should they be making concessions before there's even a table? So, you know, I sort of discount, just as I discount, to be frank, like uh, maximalist positions coming from other parties. So I think there are reasons to, to think on this question about essentially would would Russia settle for the lines of control as they are currently or more or less as they currently are? You know, they've been very vague about the precise territorial boundaries of regions they claim to have annexed. And they they have not said things like, we will not stop until we control every single inch of the administrative boundaries of Kherson and Zaporizhia as defined in their, you know, whatever. So that, that kind of rhetoric we have not seen. So I, I again... I'm, there are no guarantees here. They might come to the table and make completely unreasonable demands. But uh, I do think that it's worth testing the proposition because they keep learning the hard way that they're they're going to have trouble advancing these lines significantly too. 
I mean, in the two major offensives that Russia has undertaken since in the last year, you know, they have not ended well. And even in contexts where they're, I mean, you're maybe two and a half, where they've taken some territory, it has come at tremendous cost. So, you know, while they might be like betting on a sort of collapse scenario of Western support or whatever, it's still not going to be an easy proposition to, I don't know, retake the uh, West Bank of the Dnipro River from, from where they are today. And also, I would add that the, the questions about the sustainability of a ceasefire, if it, once it is agreed, strike me as actually quite complicated, both because of the practicalities of dealing with a line of contact of this length, where you're unlikely to have any significant third-party physical monitoring, because Russia's Russia. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I would live to be surprised if, that, if they agreed to that, but nonetheless... And then the questions of how you create a, a Ukrainian, you know, standalone deterrent and allow them to make it clear to Russia that the costs would be even more significant if they were to try to do this again in the future. And what incentives and disincentives there could be to, you know, future Russian ceasefire violations if that ceasefire is eventually agreed. So those are quite complex issues that I think require a lot of forethought before we get to the table. the negotiation between Ukraine and its partners? What should they be offering Ukraine? And do they need to offer the same thing to Georgia and Moldova? And for that matter, what about Belarus, which, uh, you know, is uh, ostensibly on Russia's side, but never entirely? So I, 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 uh, you, you made an excellent point about the three tracks, and I totally agree. Um, now, it strikes me that there's there's so much ill will that they're likely to be, um, you know, maybe there'll be an agreed ceasefire with some provisions that would, you know, a la the Korean armistice, which was negotiated and signed by uniform military, not anyone in, in, in political positions of authority, uh, and only dealt with the uh, mechanics of the ceasefire um, without, you know, any sort of political concessions. And you could imagine there being sort of unilateral actions taken by both Russia and the West in the context of that dynamic. Um, but you mentioned also the Ukraine negotiations with their Western partners, which on the G7 security commitments, uh, that is the G7 at the Vilnius NATO summit and a sort of side moment announced the framework for negotiating what I refer to as security assistance commitments, because that's essentially what they are. They're about long-term security assistance uh, to Ukraine but multiple bilateral uh, negotiations. I think something like 20 countries total have said they want to sign one of these or negotiate one. Uh, the negotiations apparently have begun with the U.S. and some of the other major G7 partners of uh, Ukraine. So I think there are a couple of questions here that uh, are important to raise in this context because I think they are being thought of and conceived of to address the problem that you raise about Russian optimism about the long term. And so we diminish Russian optimism about the long term by demonstrating our long term commitment through these, you know, bilateral security assistance commitments. 
even as we go to the negotiating table demonstrating that we're nervous about the long term ourselves? Well, I mean, you know, I don't think we need to demonstrate nervousness, but well, we can accept the realities about the challenges regarding the long term without necessarily not engaging in long term policy. Um, my concern is slightly different, which is that how these things, these uh, bilateral agreements, if your objective is, is to diminish Russia's long term optimism, you want to do them soon. Right. And almost independent of the negotiations, because you're trying to use them as a, a, a lever to get to the table. But there's another way of conceiving of these security assistance commitments, which is that they could be as um, the security assistance commitments that came in the context of the Camp David negotiations, uh, they could be used as a incentive for Ukraine to agree to what will be a much less than satisfactory outcome. And also one in which that you sort of enhance the deterrence of Ukraine in terms of future potential war recurrence scenarios. So, but there's more, you know, so like, I, I do think that we should be thinking about what more than just security assistance can be conceived of in terms of commitments, but I don't get the sense that there's much appetite to go beyond that. And so my, you know, what I urge consideration of is essentially that they be thought of as, uh, you know, that the the potential to use them in the context of a uh, moving towards negotiations be considered at least. So what can you offer them that isn't uh, security assistance commitments, which is a phrase I really like because it is precise. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad I've said one thing that you like, Olivia. Um, so You often uh, say things I like. I just, yeah, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so... There are those who would argue that, you know, you would want to pursue an accelerated path to NATO membership, regardless of whether you think that's right or wrong. You certainly need a ceasefire before you can even contemplate moving down that road. You know, I would say that there are some interesting other kinds of security commitments that could be thought about in the context of a stable ceasefire. And basically, I think the U.S. needs to start by thinking about how problematic is war recurrence for U.S. interests. You know, just speaking from the U.S., other partners might make other decisions for, in terms of Ukraine, but, uh, and how much are we willing to risk to avoid it? And it, depending on the answer to that question, I think you can think about more than just what is being contemplated in the G7 context. Um, for example, in the Camp David Accords, in the original U.S.-Israel MOU, it goes beyond just security assistance. It says, you know, if Egypt violates the ceasefire, the U.S. would, you know, consider that a language that suggests that the U.S. might itself get involved or if Israel were threatened by a world power, um, that the U.S. would consider that a grave threat to its own national security. I'm forgetting the exact language, but something along those lines. Now, that was not a legally binding document. That was not a treaty. But uh, it did create a degree of ambiguity that perhaps could have had some deterrent effect. Now, of course, in the case of Ukraine, we have to be willing to act on that. But again, that comes down to the question of how, how big of a problem is war recurrence for the U.S. Um, and how much is it willing to risk to prevent it? So let's talk about war recurrence in a broader sense. I mean, what we're looking at when we talk about these security assistance commitments and broader commitments is part and parcel of an expected deterrence-based architecture for Europe's future. 
where there's no trust, right? What there is is buildups on both sides and an effort to deter the other from whatever it is you fear the other will do. And you've also written about the dangers of uh, inflating um, Russian capability in planning for this. And this is something I've brought up as well. But I also, it's, you know, it's hard to make this judgment call. It's hard to, and if you're Estonia, right, you will say Russia doesn't have to be all that capable to pose a threat to us. And fair enough. So how do you get that right? What kind of planning is required? And how much of it could you, should you be willing to give away if you're trying to negotiate a deal that makes war recurrence or a new war less likely? So politically, I think that broader discussions on issues that go beyond the war in Ukraine would have to be, we'd need a ceasefire to even begin those conversations, I think, uh, in earnest. So let's just imagine that, that, that we have that. And then I think broader questions uh, on the one hand about force posture, for the U.S. and Europe, um, and to what extent we're willing to sustain the enhancements that have been made since February 2022, when we went to approximately 60,000 to 100,000 forces on the continent, and there were significant deployments further east. You can make the case that immediately uh, lowering those numbers and moving them forces back west probably does not make sense. I do think that uh, if we're talking about agreements that go beyond just force posture, you know, where you, at least Russia would be something of a party one way or another, the only way I think you get beyond just capability enhancements is with some, some sort of conventional arms control arrangements that are appropriate for this new environment. Now, that would still be a deterrence-based relationship. It would just sort of put some uh, stabilization measures in place from preventing it from inadvertently getting out of control. But first of all, that's going to be incredibly difficult to agree to in the current context. And that regardless, even if we, if we have it or if we don't, there's going to be a very antagonistic relationship for an indefinite period. And managing it is going to be a real challenge. And that does create, you know, above and beyond like the diminishment of Russian capabilities in the short term, like the risk, the political tensions that are built in create conflict risks independent of, you know, the fact that Russia's ground forces are much weaker than they were before the war. But, you know, the other piece of this that I'm really interested in hearing your view on is the nuclear dimension. Because, you know, one of the things people will say is NATO doesn't have the capacity to fight for very long the way Ukraine has had to fight. Not enough planes, right? We have our own ammunition shortages. I don't see how you get a long war between NATO members and Russia. I think the nuclear dimension shows up pretty early. Uh, if the Russians are at war with NATO, that's a pretty scary thing for them. And they worry that NATO is going to go after their nuclear capabilities, so they're going to have to use them first. Do you agree? And does that affect how you plan for your conventional force posture? Or should you plan for a conventional force posture that ignores nuclear weapons? Hmm. Oh, uh, that's a sorry, tough one. I didn't put the, um, yeah, sorry. But, but this is one I've been, uh, like, I'm struggling with this myself, right? I don't know the answer to this question, but I think we need to have a view because it's pretty important. 
Right. So there's, a, of course, a lot of logic in that question, which is why it's a hard one. But taken to the extreme, if we just assume that the conflict's going to go nuclear early, then we don't need any conventional forces, really, right? Like, uh, And of course, that doesn't seem either you know, practically or, or politically viable. And there's also the reassurance element here. So, uh, well, if a conflict goes on for long enough between Russia and NATO, the chances of it going nuclear are obviously incredibly high. And you know, it's sort of hard to get around that fact. And I, I would hope that the lesson learned from Ukraine is not that we can, that NATO can fight a long conventional war with Russia, because I don't think that's the right lesson to take away. I think Russia's calculus would be very different uh, in a conflict with NATO. And I also think that, you know, if we look at the high-end capabilities that are of real concern for the U.S. and NATO, many of them have not been, you know, attrited in this war. So we're coming to the end of our allotted time, and I want to ask you a question about how your own perceptions have shifted, specifically not just this recognition of, oh, wow, our assessments of the Russian military weren't quite right, that I think a lot of people had to come to face-to-face with back in February and March of 2022, but since then, watching the Russians and the Ukrainians fight, watching the politics around this war are there things that you've learned or that you've changed your mind about that uh, you think uh, that are worth highlighting? So, I mean, there, I think there are lots of interesting things we've learned about how the Russian military fights, how it learns, how you know the Ukrainian military has adapted to being given this sort of hodgepodge of capabilities and, and how it has and has not evolved from its... Um, pre-war state. But um, one thing that just uh, strikes me thinking about this is, I think in September of last year, when we had the mobilization and annexation, that is when Putin announced the mobilization of 300,000 troops and the annexation, so so-called annexation of four uh, Ukrainian regions, I guess I at that point had thought that that was sort of a burning bridges moment of point of no return on Russian objectives that he had sort of set in stone an outcome short of which he could not possibly accept. And uh, and I thought, in fact, that was the purpose of the annexation, right? It's to basically uh, make any degree of either even implicit compromise impossible short of that. And I guess what has become clear over the past year and a little bit is that it was more, uh, much more fuzzy, (laughs) um, so to speak, uh, and that Russian objectives have remained somewhat vague, uh, despite the definitiveness of that, uh, of those announcements at the time. And so I guess, whereas, you know, from the beginning, it was quite clear what they were trying to achieve uh, in the opening weeks of the war. Since then, and I thought we gained clarity in September of last year, but I I don't think we really have. And so I guess I've I've I'm from that I would take away that we should remain to a certain degree open to new information about what exactly Russia's after in this conflict. Um, and more broadly, I think uh, one thing that has become clear, and, and I think it was to a certain extent clear to me before the um, so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive or the spring-summer offensive. But uh, it's much more clear now, which is that we're in a situation where we have two militaries which are 
not really in a position to deal decisive blows to one another. And they're also not in a position to accomplish their declared territorial objectives. So while, you know, there might be sort of operational level developments on the ground between now and whenever this ends, it seems to me that we actually have some degree of clarity about the fundamentals in a way that we might not have had before. In other words, that these will remain capable adversaries that will have long-standing, both like uh, territorial and much broader societal grievances vis-a-vis one another for many decades to come. And that those sort of fundamental realities of like long-term enmity, ruling out, I would say, a formalized political settlement or peace treaty or something like that, and lack of capacity to sort of deliver the decisive outcome militarily kind of sets the stage for the future dynamics of the conflict. Um, And so that could lead to a long war. I mean, I would say if I had to, you know, if I had to put odds on an outcome, it would be that. But it's also unlikely to lead to a fundamentally different outcome after that long war than what we have right now. On that note, um, (laughs) (laughs) no, thank you so much, Sam. Um, I thought this was a really good discussion and thoughtful and uh, raised a lot of important questions and maybe even offered some possible answers to them. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aya. If you want to read more from Sam, uh, you can follow him on Twitter, uh, where he tells you when he's published something. He's at S-C-H-A-R-A-P. You can also check out his work on Rand's website. Uh, Among the work you'll find there is uh, a piece he wrote called Avoiding a Long War with Miranda Preeb, which apparently is one of the top downloads from the Rand website. He also has published a good bit lately in foreign affairs, uh, including um, An Unwinnable War, Washington Needs an Endgame in Ukraine, and Right-Sizing the Russia Threat, which touches on some of the issues we've discussed. If you want to read Crisis Group's work on the war in Ukraine, uh, we have our own website, crisisgroup.org, and you can follow Crisis Group on uh, Twitter, X, whatever it is, um, Crisis Groups at Crisis Group. I'm not on Twitter any longer, but you can find me as at Olya Olaker on Blue Sky, if you've joined that, or Mastodon. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygorsky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub, for making all of this possible for each and every episode. But my biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. If you have thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts um, to ensure you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you've not done so already, again, uh, on the podcast platform of your choice. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you soon, or at least in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.